Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. Following the outbreak of the American Civil War, the abolitionist movement underwent an astonishing transformation, which would in time alter the direction of the war, the shape of the post-war settlement, and destroy the abolitionist movement itself. As the movement's moral outsiders found themselves becoming interest group insiders, not only their approach but also their message and ultimately their goals changed. Ideological differences became ideological conflicts, and personal animosities were soon blended into the mix. This is the argument of Frank J. Cirillo in his new book, The Abolitionist Civil War, Immediatists and the Struggle to Transform the Union. Frank J. Cirillo is a historian of slavery and anti-slavery in the 19th century United States. He has held positions at the University of Bonn, the New School, and the University of Virginia. This is his first book. Frank Cirillo, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks, Al. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for having me. What were the varieties of abolitionists in 1860s America? If we were field biologists studying the abolitionists as they sweep across the great savannas and tundras of 1860 America, how would we classify them and group them? Yeah, so that is a question of uh, some dispute among historians, but... The way I talk about it in my book, I first want to define what an abolitionist is and what an abolitionist isn't. So I pretty much see there are four main characteristics of what you would describe, what I would describe as an abolitionist. First, these are people who believed in immediate emancipation, an immediate end to slavery in the United States. And this made them different from people who believed in a gradual end to slavery. Uh, gradualists. Second, they believed in a place for African Americans in the United States after emancipation. I refer to this as black rights, and this could mean anything. It could mean a variety of different things. It could mean full equality for African Americans, for formerly enslaved individuals. It could mean that these formerly enslaved individuals would just be working on plantations for nominal wages. But there would be some place for African-Americans after emancipation. And this made abolitionists different from people who believed in colonization, essentially saying that once slavery is over, you would send these former slaves to Africa or the Caribbean or somewhere that's not the United States. Third, these abolitionists were not part of mainstream political parties. So there is a difference between abolitionist and someone who is just anti-slavery. It's the difference between a square and a rectangle. All abolitionists were anti-slavery, but not all anti-slavery people were abolitionists. So Charles Sumner, a radical Republican, President Abraham Lincoln, were people who had strong anti-slavery views, but they were part of a party with a more moderate center of mass. So they had to toe the party line and often espouse less radical views than those they actually believed in. So I argue that these people are not abolitionists. The only, only people who were free of this party adhesion were abolitionists. And finally, fourth and finally, and this is my addition to the definition, 
I argue that abolitionists believed in perfecting the current union, which was imperfect because it contained slavery and racial equality, and they wanted to transform it, to perfect it and create a morally transformed union, a more perfect union in which there was no slavery, in which African Americans lived in the nation free and possibly equal, and in which the nation could fulfill its destiny as this great beacon of democracy, which was prophesied by Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, but which slavery had pushed it off course from in the ensuing decades after 1776. Now, in terms of the different groups, the different factions... Let me just, before we do that, let me just run down that repeat. This is Cirillo's four criteria for an abolitionist. Immediate emancipation, place for African Americans in the post-emancipated post-emancipation United States, not part of mainstream politics, because that's where that's where moral ideals get corrupted. This is this is the sort of classic of any single interest group, basically, in the modern world. And fourth, perfecting an imperfect union. That's the fourth criteria of an abolitionist. Some anti-slavery people share two out of four. They might share three out of four. But they're not pure abolitionists unless you have all four and this is the way the abolitionists think about themselves as well yes the the abolitionists are probably the most egotistical people i've ever encountered but they certainly do think of themselves as pure they refer to themselves as saints quite often but they do see themselves they did see themselves as above this mainstream fray these people who were corrupted by politics they had to be these objective people who could tell the nation this is what we have to do to become great to, uh, to fulfill our destiny. Well, we'll get to that as well, because yeah, yeah. also these are people who can give themselves up to a life of self-denial and purity. There is, they are, in effect, radical Protestant monastics. They uh, are. And- the way, a way in which they are friars, more like. They preach. When they're more preaching friars than cloistered monks, for sure. Yeah, and it wasn't easy. And they spent 30 years being attacked by mobs, literally yes. in the press and literal people trying to lynch them. Yeah, and succeeding in, in, in several cases. But let's go on. So who are you? I, I interrupted you as you're going to explain some people who are not abolitionists. But and this is coming from <laughs> looking at this from a southern perspective. They all look like a bunch of damn abolitionists to me, as I think of it through the slave owner mentality. It's these distinctions are too fine. These are, this is what someone says, these are the distinctions of small differences, which of course is always what the incomprehending outsider says. Yeah, so the to the Southerners, anyone who speaks a single word, however moderate against slavery, is a radical abolitionist and deserves to be hanged. They're, they don't understand the gradations much like Northerners didn't understand the gradations in terms of secessionism and pro-slavery sentiment in the South. They, there is really no understanding in Boston of the differences between Upper South border states and the Deep South on the issue of slavery. And yes, so there's everyone. So, they, yeah, go ahead. so a, a, was it John Hartwell Coke of Dramo Bluff, Virginia, who is a... Uh, immediate to gradual emancipationist and a colonizer, 
who is one of the few people that does free slaves to let them go to Liberia. He's the same as Robert Barnwell Rhett, the most ferocious of the Southern secessionists and white, basically white supremacists. Right. So, yeah, yeah that's uh, arguably part of why the Civil War happened, because both sides just saw each other as monolithic evils, and there was no understanding, just mm-hmm. across purposes. Okay. The immediatists, I'll have to cut that. <laughs> Sorry. I, I could Lost explain that, that you could Lost. call them immediatists. Immediatists, again, are, immediatists are those who want an immediate end to slavery. And of course, that prior to 1861 is absolutely impossible. But there's, it would seem as a political criteria. I want to push you on the fourth, perfecting an imperfect union. Doesn't the most prominent of the abolitionists, William Lloyd Garrison, really gains notoriety for burning a copy of the Constitution and calling it a, was it a pact with hell or a pact with Satan? Yep. Um, and how is that perfecting an imperfect union? You're burning it. You're destroying it. Abraham Lincoln, maybe Martin Van Buren and the Barnburner Democrats in, what, 1850, they might, or 1848, they might say, John Quincy Adams, they might say, gosh, we're the ones that are trying to perfect an imperfect union, but but not Garrison. Garrison right. just wants to destroy anything that gets in the way of moral perfection. First off, I'll just mention what the different kinds of abolitionists are, so I could talk okay. about what Garrison is. And just I, immediatists and abolitionists, I just use interchangeably. They're, they're the same okay. thing. Uh, so if we're, we're talking about on the eve of the Civil War, 1860, there are two main factions of abolitionists. There are the followers of William Lloyd Garrison, who are just shorthand the Garrisonians. Uh, this is people like Garrison himself, his right-hand man named Wendell Phillips, a radical preacher named Parker Pillsbury. These people believed, first off, in what's that the Constitution was pro-slavery. So they believed that starting from 1787, slavery had been written into the, the framework of the U.S. political system, and therefore it was corrupt from the founding of the Constitution. Uh, therefore, they believed in working outside of the political system rather than from working within it. And they believed most controversially in the idea of dis- So this is when Garrison burns the Constitution on stage at a abolitionist 4th of July rally, of all things. The idea is that the, this political system is so corrupt that the North should voluntarily leave the Union in the name of anti-slavery. The end result essentially would be that without the protection, the northern protections of the Fugitive Slave Clause and other protections, slaves would just flee from the south en masse to the separatist United North. And this would end slavery, and then the United States could reunify without slavery. So it was not a permanent idea. And I'll get to Garrison's beliefs on a more perfect union in a second. But just quickly, there's... A lot of people who don't like his ideas within the abolitionist movement and just for uh, sake of ease refer to them as non-Garrisonians. The most famous of this these people is uh, Frederick Douglass, who actually started out when he fled slavery and fled to New Bedford, Massachusetts. He started out as Garrison's main protege. Garrison brought him to all anti-slavery meetings. He was one of the most ardent supporters of Garrison until he started chafing under Garrison's thumb because Garrison was a extremely controlling individual and he eventually broke out on his own. But uh, we should say, I mean, we, 
as much as I enjoy psychologizing here, it's not simply. Garrison is a pain in the neck to be controlled by. And as we'll see, Wendell Phillips doesn't like that either, eventually. Right. But they did but, also have different views. Yes. But Douglas is, to use an overused word, he is a genius. Right. And because he is able, on the basis of reading very little, to rigorously go back to first principles. This is where he and Lincoln are so much alike. And so he is having an, a deep ideological disagreement with, even though he maintains immediatism, he maintains this wariness of politics until very late in the Civil War, he is still, he's going back to different political, he has a different political philosophy, dare I say. Yes. To summarize, Garrisonians believed the Constitution was pro-slavery, wanted to burn the Constitution. Gar Douglas comes to believe the Constitution is, in fact, anti-slavery. He's taking the argument of a lot of abolitionists who came before and people like John Quincy Adams, 18th century abolitionists, and arguing this. And therefore, you can work within the political system. So rather than just leaving the political system and denouncing it as corrupt, you can form your own radical political parties, such as the Liberty Party is the biggest example. So they're not saying we want to be part of the mainstream parties. We don't want to be Republicans. We want our own pure parties to create change within the system. Now, the reason that I say that all these people believed in a more perfect union, a morally transformed union, is because Garrison hated the current political system. He wanted to destroy it, but he wanted to replace it with something that fulfilled the promise of the Declaration of Independence. So he was very, though he was burned the Constitution at a Fourth of July rally, he was very pointedly not burning the Declaration of Independence because right. he believed in the founding promise of America. He just did not believe that the current political system created by the Constitution could create that future, whereas Douglas so, believed we could get it through the Constitution. So we have a very interesting sort of, we have a very interesting Venn diagram that you can eventually start building up over time. Did you ever draw one? It must because there's yeah, reason it, it you did because you see where these overlap. You can see here where you know Lincoln and Garrison, who who are looking at on the ground in 1858, are really antagonistic. They are not allies. And yet, the way that they think about the, the Declaration is a very important place where their two Venn diagrams actually overlap. That will give them a, a certain political solidarity going forward. It does. And it eventually leads Garrison to a very interesting quote regarding Lincoln when they become allies. So I'm happy to talk no, about we'll that. Get to the, we'll get to that. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I want to leave Lincoln out of this because this is the abolition yes. story. This yeah, is not yeah. the Abraham Lincoln show. show. Any other variety. So we've got the Garrisonians and the non-Garrisonians. Mm -hmm. And then we've got lots of other people who are probably in the anti-slavery movement but who are not abolitionists. And they'll become important later on as to our story as they as this this like dust motes swirling in a shaft of light as these things, as they swirl around and coalesce into different formations and, and mm -hmm. patterns. One of the lessons of the book is how we are swept along by events and how our, our ideas are overcome by certain very tangible realities and how hard that is for people who have held beliefs and ideology for 30 years to deal with. That's one of the lessons, life lessons I'm getting out of this. So that there is, you have very helpfully divide the chapters by months 
And mm-hmm. sometimes it's a very short time before the realities of secession and the war create changes and in inflections. There's multiple inflection points, one after the other. Mm-hmm. So abolitionists are very different on December 19th, the day before South Carolina secedes, than they are really on December 21st. So let's go through the first movements towards secession. Um, how are abolitionists the same or different before and after the South Carolina secession? So by the late 1850s, the abolitionist movement is already starting to change and secession and civil war makes a change a whole bunch more. But you're already starting to see some differences. For 30 years, the main factions have been Garrisonians and non-Garrisonians. But you're starting to see a kind of realignment and a shift into these new groupings that I talk about in my book. And the main reason for that is abolitionists has essentially spent the 1840s and 1850s accruing loss after loss. The slave power has seemed more and more dominant in national affairs, looking at events from the Compromise of 1850 and the New Fugitive Slave Law to Bleeding Kansas to Dred Scott. Things are looking really bad, and the abolitionists are essentially saying, we've been doing this for 30 years, and what do we have to show for it? We've been trying to be pure. We've been trying to stay above the fray, and no one is listening to us. Things are not working. So that frustration leads a lot of them to start saying, maybe instead of just trying to be totally pure and to try to do things the right way, and that's the only way things can be done, Maybe we should use whatever means, whatever instruments we have at hand to try and just achieve change as quick as possible, because nothing else seems to be working. Maybe we need to try something else. And one of the instruments they saw was this new political party that emerged in the 1850s called the Republican Party. The Republicans were anti-slavery. They were not abolitionists. They believed in a gradual anti-slavery, but their main platform, the main thing that they were winning votes for was not ending slavery where it existed, but saying slavery should not expand into the territories, into these areas that had not been admitted to the Union of States yet. Slavery should stop where it already is. It shouldn't go into Kansas. It shouldn't go into Nebraska, into these territories. So these abolitionists, the ones that I refer to as interventionists, so this is the vast majority of the movement, so it's people like Willie McGarrison, but also Frederick Douglass, Wendell Phillips, they say, we don't want to become Republicans, but maybe we can nudge to our way towards supporting them. Maybe they'll be somewhat useful in our fight against slavery. But then there's a group of abolitionists led by a person I mentioned earlier, Parker Pillsbury, and also his close friend, Abby Kelly Foster. These are people who uh, I refer to as moral purists, and these are a very hardline little group of abolitionists, there are not very many of them, but they essentially say, no, that like the ends do not justify the means. To achieve moral ends, to achieve a more perfect union, you have to use moral means. Anything else will fail because it's not divinely ordained. And all it'll do is corrupt you in the process. If you try to get your hands dirty, yeah, go ahead. Are these Quakers? Are they pacifists? There are Quakers who are attached to them, but the main people I talk about, Pillsbury and Foster, are not pacifists. Foster was actually born a Quaker, but she was not a practicing Quaker. They didn't believe, they. their problem, as we'll see, was not with the Union cause, with the Union, with war in general, it was with the Union war specifically. Mm-hmm. So these people 
wanted to stay pure. They wanted to remain above the fray and say, no, we can't we can't have anything to do with the Republicans. Pure ends require pure means. Anything less will corrupt you. So these are the interventionists and world purists I see on the eve of secession. These battle lines are starting to replace the old Garrisonian, non-Garrisonian divide. Because, again, events are changing them. They're seeing the rise of the Republicans and starting to adapt. Secession kind of scrambles everything. Because, as you mentioned, though, like these people have spent 30 years with these ideals, just writing theoretically about what disunion and the end of slavery. They had not expected anything like this to happen. <laughs> They've lived through a time period where compromise after compromise is done when the South threatens, oh, we're going to secede or we're going to do something. If the North doesn't compromise on slavery, every time the North backed down. Uh, compromise of 1850 is only the latest example of this, but there are many more. So they expect the yes, Lincoln was elected, but there's going to be some saber rattling from the South, but it'll just end in another compromise. Maybe they'll extend the Missouri Compromise, which is a line where it says above which state the territories and new states are free below which they're slave maybe they'll just extend it to california maybe they'll create a constitutional amendment to just guarantee the existence of slavery where it already exists forever which was actually the original lead draft it was what would have been the 13th amendment and lincoln actually supported it as a candidate and before he took office they they hadn't expected any of this to happen so they're kind of scrambling and for a brief moment after secession, everyone actually gets on the same page. The Garrisonians had supported disunion, which is very different from secession. They wanted the North to leave the Union in the name of anti-slavery. They didn't want the South to leave the Union in the name of defending slavery. But essentially, they say, maybe it'll be the same difference. If the nation's divided, there's not going to be any protection. Like, the slaves can just flee to the North because there's not going to be any people like Douglas who had hated disunion are saying, if the only alternative is just another compromise, maybe it's necessary after all. So they're all they're very briefly on the same page because they're again scrambling. They're scrambling in the dark to try and figure out what's happening because yeah, events are most definitely outpacing their expectations. And then on April twelfth, there's the firing on Fort Sumter. Fort mm-hmm. Sumter surrenders two days later, and then on April fifteenth, fatefully, Lincoln calls. 75 out for 75,000 volunteers specifically request 5,000 men from 5,045 men from Virginia and basically turns the upper south against the federal government and then things change again yeah that that changes everything abolitionists certainly hadn't expected secession and they most definitely did not expect the North to go to war, the Union to go to war to try and end slavery and bring the South back. Pretty much every abolitionist, if you ask them in April 1st, 1861, they would say, there's going to be another compromise. The only alternative to compromise is just keeping the states separate because the new incoming president, Lincoln, the Republicans, they're just going to compromise. There's not going to be a war. When and to their surprise, after Fort Sumter, they were proven totally wrong. The North, the nation, the northern states rushed to war. Hundreds of thousands of men are signing up to join the Union military to defeat the insurrectionists. So it's a massive change that the abolitionists had not expected to see. But that's interesting. Given all the massive recent research 
like mm-hmm. Clayton Butler. We'll link to this in the show notes, who's on the podcast back in episode 291, talking about unionism in mm-hmm. in 1850s and certainly in 1861, 1863 America. It's interesting, the abolitionists don't see that going on in their own society. They or they discount. It's interesting how they're blind, not just to what's going on in the South or varieties of things in the South. It's how we often don't see what's going on around us or the values yeah. that are in the society around us. They most certainly are. They yeah, they see everything through the lens of slavery. The slave power has corrupted everything and corrupted the right. North into its thrall. They don't understand that. Yeah, there is this strong pull of unionism. And this most certainly leads to a reevaluation of public northern public opinion and how to reach it. Mm-hmm. And maybe the old tactics didn't work. But this, mm-hmm. the in short, this the rise of war, a civil war between the Union and the Confederacy, brings back this divide between interventionists and moral purists. And not only brings it back, but makes it the divide. So this is now the fault line within abolitionism. There, the Garrisonians and non-Garrisonians, there are still some underlying tensions these people had fought against each other for 20 years and there's some tensions there but it's no longer the main battle line frederick douglas and garrison are back the band is back together again those those things are chopped so it's now it's non-garrisonians are also now interventionists and not moral purists and i guess there are probably some garrisonians who are like parker pillsbury are moral purists who don't want to intervention uh interventions yeah i'll get a little later to how people like Douglas and Garrison put aside their differences. But yeah, so the interventionists, you get Garrisonians like Garrison and Phillips, and you get non-Garrisonians like Frederick Douglass. And the moral purists, most of them are these hardline Garrisonians like Parker Pillsbury and Abby Kelly Foster. But the big fear of an interventionist and of an an interventionist abolitionist Mm -hmm. is that with those 75,000 men, the South will fold like a cardboard suit. And then comes First Bull Run, July 21st, 1861. And in many ways, in defeat is hope. Absolutely. So yes, the abolitionists fear that essentially they see this Union War as their massive opportunity. It's a big risk, but it's a massive opportunity. This can be our vehicle to end slavery. If we can get the North to end slave to to use slavery as a way to defeat the Confederacy, that's ha- we're halfway there. That'll greatly accelerate our mission. But it's not inevitable, right? Because, yes, if the Union just wins a really quick victory, then the war's over. No one's ended slavery. The Union war at the start, as, as prosecuted by the Republican administration, was to preserve the Union. It was not to end slavery at first. So the problem is, yeah, if the war ends too quickly, well, there's no emancipation. There's also a problem if it lasts too long, maybe maybe the South will end up doing something, but that's a different question. But so essentially the, these interventionists say this, we need, it'll be, this is our opportunity if we make the Union war become a war for emancipation, but it's not going to happen on its own. We have to make it happen. We have to get involved and we have to intervene in this war. And that's a really difficult thing to do because as you mentioned earlier, how these people I believed in different things for 30 years, and now all of a sudden they have to renounce that. And Bull Run really accelerates this trend because it does show this battle could have gone either way. It was it ended up being a massive defeat for the Union Army, but if the Union had won in July 1861, essentially the 
these this really green Union Army marched straight out of Washington and met a really green Confederate Army out of Richmond, right outside of Washington. If the Union had won, it would have just marched straight into which Richmond war's over, right? So it so it reminded them we might not have time on our hands because the we have to convince the Union to embrace emancipation before this war ends. So they did essentially abandoned 30 years of tactics. So Wendell Phillips gave a speech where he he was really conflicted before, and he said to a friend, do I have to renounce my entire past for the sake of creating change? And he did. He did. These these guys, these interventionists, Garrison, Douglas, Phillips, really abandoned the sense of being above the fray as these detached, aloof moral reformers and became pol- like political interest group lobbyists. So, Let's be honest. Douglas turned out to be a lot better at that than Phillips. <laughs> yes, he was, because he had a better grasp of public opinion, and I would argue it was a better order. But the idea was that instead of just, it goes back to what you said earlier, Al, about Northerners not under, abolitionists not understanding Northern public opinion. They, they come to realize now, yeah, we don't understand them. We've been talking, we've make been making high-minded moral appeals for 30 years, and they don't seem to care. So maybe we should appeal to their own self-interest and say, not that uh, emancipation is just the right and just thing to do, but it's necessary to win the war and to save your fathers and your sons and your brothers. It's the only way we can defeat the rebellion and bring back. So they create a series of, of talking points, essentially talking about how emancipation was expedient and how it would be possible under the War Powers Clause of the United States Constitution. So yeah, this creates a pretty jarring effect. Willie Moy Garrison, who only a few years earlier had been burning the Constitution, is now publishing pamphlets and writing speeches and saying, hey, we should use this clause in the United States Constitution. It's our greatest weapon in the fight against slavery. Again, everything is topsy-turvy. Everything has changed. And they also realize we have to work together to make this argument. It's not going to have much of an effect if Garrison's just giving an isolated speech and then Douglas is giving his own. So they create what I call an anti-slavery alliance. They work together and the Garrison and Douglas patch together their differences. There's a lot of complaining and griping about that. Garrison at one point says, trust is a hard thing to build, but at least the process has started of rebuilding our relationship. And they do start to work together. But another effect of the Battle of Bull Run is them realizing maybe we have to reach outside our own ranks. Maybe it's not enough for us to just work together because we don't have political power, right? We could deliver all the speeches we want. We're not in the halls of power and we're not in Congress. We don't have that much sway. So they start expanding this alliance, this anti-slavery alliance, to include the most left radical faction of the Republican Party. So these are what we call radical Republicans, people like Charles Sumner, Governor John Andrew of Massachusetts. These are people who are pretty much with the abolitionists on three of the four main criteria that I mentioned earlier. They want an anti-slavery immediately. They want black rights. They believe in a perfected union. They are part of mainstream parties, so that's the main sticking point. So that's like Thaddeus Stevens. It's hard to see how he falls out on on any three criteria. He just likes politicking a lot. Yes. So that's why he has failed to be a pure, actual abolitionist. And this is the Emancipation League, so-called, that that begins that summer? So the Emancipation League is... So the Anti-Slavery Alliance starts as an informal thing where they're just tentatively creating, you know, networks of communication. And the Emancipation League is an actual formal organization. Essentially, they decide 
in the fall of 1861. We've been working together informally in this alliance. Let's make an actual organization to codify it, to f- and that could actually do things like sponsor lectures, launch a blitz of newspaper articles across the country, an education series, which they actually do to try and educate Northerners and like workshops on the on how emancipation is not scary, but it's actually like necessary and expedient. So that's the Emancipation League. It, okay. it starts in the fall of 1861, and it is just, yeah, a formalization of this alliance. And meanwhile, the enslaved are pushing events along by seeking freedom. And, yes. of course, this has been a thing since May when people. this is starting to happen in northern Virginia and Alexandria and Arlington and D.C. And people who will become abolitionist heroes like Benjamin Butler are returning them to their owners because no one knows what the hell to do in that first yes. month of the war. No. But by a few, just again, this changes from month to month. This reminded me a lot of the famous, maybe apocryphal, Prime Minister Harold Macmillan quotes when asked what he was afraid of. Events, dear boy. Events mm-hmm. drive things along. And, they do. And so we've got Butler, who was a abolitionist villain, becomes an abolitionist hero a few months later because he starts to give help and refuge to enslaved people seeking freedom at Fort Monroe, where he's been shuffled off or shuffled to, uh, down at the bottom of the peninsula in Virginia. So this is all happening. It's happening everywhere. It's happening in Missouri. It's happening and eventually in the islands of South Carolina and North Carolina. Yep. And the before we get to that, this is, this is already how in 1862, they're starting to imagine Reconstruction and what Reconstruction will be like. But this is the strange for them, the, uh, the very strange fact of them becoming celebrities, which is very bizarre. People had tried to lynch them. Sometimes, mm-hmm. like in the case of the Lovejoy or Owen Lovejoy, they had was it Owen or Elijah. I always get them mixed up. Yeah, uh, Elijah yeah, Lovejoy had, was murdered, and his well, brother Owen Elijah then became uh, Owen became a congressman. a congressman. Elijah Lovejoy was murdered. He wasn't the only one. And Garrison, they tried many, many times, and but all of a sudden, Garrison's a celebrity. People went to hear what he has to say for the first time in his life. It's, it's the strangest really, thing. It's truly bizarre. Essentially, what's happening is by the fall of 1861 the, and the winter going into 1862, the war is continuing. And Northerners are becoming weary, right? Again, their, their fathers, their sons, brothers are at war, and it's not ending. Right. They want them. They want the North, the, the Union to win. They want their loved ones to come home. And they're starting to see that these abolitionist arguments, as uh, promoted by their political allies in Congress and elsewhere, are actually pretty common sense. They're not that scary after all. It's just a way to win the war. Uh, so they start to catch on and they catch on to the point that abolitionists actually start allying not only with radical Republicans, but with people who had hated them before the war. So these are people uh not to get too complicated, but I just refer to them as anti-slavery conservatives, essentially moderates who weren't fans of slavery before the war, but also were most certainly not fans of abolitionists. Uh, the most famous is this uh, guy named Edward Everett, who is perhaps best well known for uh, delivering the three-hour oration preceding Lincoln's Gettysburg Address in 1863. 
he did a lot more than that. He was a former governor of Massachusetts, but well, essentially, I mean, but we, which is why they hate him so much because yeah. he's he was their governor, but he was a Northern Whig who had compromised with the slave power, and, and he's also an intellectual, and so oh, therefore yeah. he is a he is a class traitor. I yes. think we can regard him as such. Absolutely, and he was like a kind of mortal enemy, especially Wendell Phillips. Yeah, they were well, both really big everybody's mortal. a mortal enemy of Wendell Phillips, yes. including <laughs> absolutely. They were delivered dueling speeches, essentially just insulting each other throughout the 1850s. But now, actually, Wendell Phillips reaches out to Edward Everett and says, hey, you want to join our alliance? We see that you've been saying speeches that essentially say you're amenable to emancipation under the war power. You want to join? And he does. The problem is, as we'll get to later, these people, these new allies are certainly great with emancipation. They're not so much interested in rights for African-Americans. But the point is, as we'll get to that later, but as all these people are joining the lines, spreading their arguments, abolitionists become popular. So yes, Garrison is suddenly greeted not by mobs, but by cheering crowds. People like Wendell Phillips and a few other abolitionists like Moncure Conway, who all very colorful figure interventionists I'll get to later. They're invited to Washington to deliver lectures at the Smithsonian and then lecture before Congress and meet Lincoln at the White House, which again is astounding, right? Not, none of this could have happened. A you have a great early. anecdote. You have a great anecdote of how Moncure Conway, his book, is initially published. The first edition is published mm-hmm. under a pseudonym, thanks to Charles Sumner talking to a publisher. What's that book? Yes. It's basically his memoir of being a Virginian. It's the the it's called the Rejected Stone. The Rejected Stone. And then he comes out with a new book for a bigger publisher. And the first publisher is like outraged. How could dare he betray us? And they come out with a second edition with his name on it. And this is just, what, six months after the first edition? It's Mm -hmm. things have changed that much that you no longer have to be anonymous. Town publisher for a big one, Tickner and Fields, which is a big name publisher. It's it's like uh, Harry Potter going from Mm -hmm. from whatever the first press was, Joe Rowling going to like Bloomsbury. It's like. Yeah. But yeah, it's a funny anecdote because the original publishers, these small town press, they write to him really <laughs> angrily and saying, no one would have touched you with a 10-foot pole before, but now all of a sudden, as soon as you're a little bit popular, you just abandon us. And he says, Lincoln read my book, which is true. Lincoln did read his book, so I can do whatever I want. Let's talk. Let's start. Let's finally, we have yeah. to talk about Lincoln because Lincoln now becomes a, a object, maybe a direct object rather than a, necessarily a verb for the abolitionists. Mm-hmm. He is, they are working upon him. There also becomes the debate what amongst abolitionists often becomes about what's going on in Abraham Lincoln's head, which is a very strange, but mm-hmm. this is it. And we have, I think, one of the most bizarre moments in American politics has to be in the summer of 1862, where Lincoln has an emancipation proclamation in his drawer that he's pretending isn't there. Yes. And and while maneuvering his way towards promulgating it, mm-hmm. but not letting on that it's there. And abolitionists are increasingly going back to regarding him as the enemy, and an enemy of a potential reconstruction. Could you flesh that out briefly? Briefly. Yeah. So essentially by the summer of 1862, the interventionists had actually succeeded. So I should mention all along while they're getting involved in politics and getting more and more involved, the moral purists are outraged and horrified and saying, you're doing terrible things. Like you're corrupting yourselves, what you're doing. You're just going to destroy your chance to save the union, to create a more perfect union. And you're going to corrupt yourselves. You're going to lose sight of your goals and 
lose sight of everything. But the interventionists, at least for now, have actually proven correct. They have raised public opinion and they have essentially forced Lincoln's hand. Along with greater military and political events, he is ready to, in, to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. But they are not his confidants. They don't know this. And they essentially think, while well, he is, he starts, Lincoln essentially starts saying, trying to offer bones, essentially, to the anti-emancipation side in preparation for issuing a proclamation. But the abolitionists don't know this. They just see him as going totally pro-slavery. So they argue, they, yeah, they lash out against him a great bit. And they also start thinking about Reconstruction. I've talked about this divide between interventionists and moral purists. And what that essentially, theoretical disagreement is over the means to our more perfect union, to a morally transformed union. Can we use what? It, can we use imperfect means, or do we have to use perfect means? But there starts to be a divide among interventionists, not over the means to a more perfect union, but over what that more perfect union means. You know, what's going to reconstruction after the war? What's it going to look like? Essentially, what rights should black, should African Americans have? And this is a divide between what I call narrow interventionists and, and broad interventionists. So narrow interventionists are people like Conway, Moncure Conway, but most prominently William Lloyd Garrison. And they essentially adopt a pretty restrictive view of black rights, of rights for African-Americans. They say, obviously, African-Americans should stay in the country after emancipation. We don't believe in colonization, but they should just pretty much stay on their old plantations and work for wages. So essentially a free labor plantation society, not come to the north, not have full political equality, anything like that. So those are narrow interventionists. And whereas people like Frederick Douglass, William and Wendell Phillips are what I call broad interventionists. And they come to believe essentially that African-Americans deserve way more than that. They shouldn't stay on their old plantations. They deserve full equality, political equality, social equality, economic equality, they should be fully equal with white Americans in a post-emancipation society. Suffrage, citizenship, all the works. So they are very different understandings of what Reconstruction is. And now for the time being, they're all working, all these interventionists, the immediate goal in front of them is to get Lincoln to end slavery, right? To end, For emancipation. So they're putting this aside for the time being, they're still working together, but it is simmering below the surface and going to boil to the surface pretty soon. The Lincoln announces the Emancipation Proclamation in, what, in September of yes. 1860. After so he's he was waiting for a Union victory to not seem desperate, and they get right. it at Antietam. At right. least nominally. And, and nominally, at least the Confederate Army leaves Northern soil, so he right. and that's good enough. So he announces that it will take effect January first, but of course it's it, there's certainly a large section of the abolitionists who believe that he's probably lying. They don't believe he's telling the truth about that. It's, it's, and this will become, eventually, for Phillips, this will become like, this will become like a maggot on his brain that he can't, get, he can't get rid of. Lincoln always lies. Every utterance has to be interpreted through his sort of, inter, his natural deceit. Yeah, so part of that is Phillips feels personally betrayed by Lincoln, because remember, he was one of the people who went to lecture in Washington in early 1862, and he met with Lincoln, and he thought that he had uh, gotten through to Lincoln. Uh, and Lincoln is very good at talking around people and saying things that make people think 
it's what they want to hear without actually committing to anything. And he does that to Phillips. So Phillips essentially thinks Lincoln's on my side. And then when Lincoln starts doing things, again, before he issues the Emancipation Proclamation that are not very friendly to the anti-slavery forces, Phillips feels personally betrayed. He feels, well, he made me these right. guarantees and he betrayed me and I'm never going to trust him again. And this so is a a, lot of, it, just a side thing, just reading Phillips, man, it is, talk about class problem. He yeah. he is a he talks about Lincoln in the way that only a Harvard graduate could talk about a Kentucky-born three years of education. He is such a snob. I mean, he is he the is a, yeah. worst of all the Lincoln haters. So many of the Lincoln haters do hate Lincoln for being a yokel and a hasty, but Phillips is really the worst. Oh, yes. He is a Boston Brahmin through and through, and he literally uses Kentucky and is an insult against Lincoln uh, numerous times in his numerous speeches. times, yeah, yeah. So he, but leaving that aside, the the ab, when the Emancipation Proclamation takes effect, mm-hmm. after Lincoln's been flirting with colonization, at least trying it on for size. Apparently, I have my yeah. I have certain doubts about how serious. Now I'm much less inclined to regard that he was serious about it, but he. It takes effect. Everyone's surprised, shocked. And we should point out January 1st was the Juneteenth uh, for lots and lots of northern blacks for a, mm-hmm. a, at least a century before we decided that there had to be a Texas holiday for everybody. Right. But the then there be, this leads to, as you say, the second realignment of abolitionists in the Civil War. 1863 is a time really of the abolitionist Civil War. The Civil War between abolitionists comes to a new height. Could you explain yeah. that? Realize we've so got about 15 minutes left in the, in, the, in the show. Sure. So it's essentially a product of their own victory, right? They, these interventionists won, right? They did get the, turn the Union War into a war for emancipation. But now there's nothing to hold these narrow and broad interventionists together. They, uh, they won. They achieved their immediate goal. And now it becomes clear they have very different views of black rights. And that's going to be the prominent issue at play now. So it starts to create can, a... Yeah. Can I just say something? I look around the contemporary political landscape and what always strikes me is the absolute inability and disinterest of everybody and every faction to persuade each other of things. Yes. Uh What's really striking is seeing how bad abolitionists were in 1863 at even persuading each other. Or yep. some, I don't even know if, were they interested in doing it, but they there, there seems to be no attempt to come up with, hammer out some sort of compromise. We can go this far together, or it's just basically, they did they immediately fall into dissension? What's they, going on here? No, so they actually tried to use just like vague language to talk about a post-emancipation solution at first, but it just became untenable because it just became really clear that they had really different ideas of everything about, and emancipation, again, they hadn't expected to see a civil war emancipation in their lifetime, so they didn't so hadn't ne- really they, thought much. They had only, they had really only thought about emancipation. Yeah. That was so it. They're, yeah, so they're hammering out their ideals and realizing, hey, we might actually have much more that divides us than we have in common at this point. Right. So, so, you, so if you put yeah. this in constitutional terms, uh, we'll see. Everyone had thought about, in the abolitionist camp, had thought about the 13th Amendment, but never yep. about the 14th or the 15th. Yep. So essentially you get these narrow interventionists, people like Garrison and Conway, saying, 
not only do we want a very restrictive view of black rights, but we're just going to abandon our interest in them altogether. I argue this has a lot to do. These people had spent three, two, three years immersed in the political mainstream, getting involved in politics, and they essentially start adopting the views of their political allies. These people like these anti-slavery conservatives who wanted emancipation and not more. And they start rallying to the idea of Abraham Lincoln as the embodiment of their ideals. So we want union victory and emancipation. We don't want, we're not interested in post-emancipation black rights. That's not part of our mission. Whereas you get the broad interventionists like Phillips and Douglas saying, no, that is our mission. We want full equality. We want nothing less. And Lincoln, who again is just fighting war for emancipation, not for black rights, he's an obstacle to that. We're, and we're going to oppose him if necessary. And the moral purists who have been proven wrong about emancipation had happened, they come onto the same ground as broad interventionists. So essentially, you get the broad guys and the moral purists working together as an anti-Lincoln faction, and you get the narrow guys as a pro-Lincoln faction. And this creates a real civil war that's just colored with electoral politics during the election of 1864. They fight each other. They become bitter partisans. They do they embrace pretty stupid tactics to try and one-up each other, and it just is just a total mess and total disaster, and it just harms a lot of their reputations, and it, yeah, just really the, no benefit. So let's look at 1864 then. <clears throat> As you say, the only person that comes out of it with an improved position in many ways is Frederick Douglass, Douglass out of the yes. abolitionist movement, and that's because he's actually a better politician than mm -hmm. anyone else in the abolitionist movement, it, it would seem mm -hmm. to me. And But could you describe the absolutely bizarre trajectory of finding an alternative to Lincoln, where that becomes the cause of the broad interventionists? Yep. So so these pro-Lincoln guys, the narrow interventionists like Garrison, they embrace Lincoln's candidacy for the 1864 election, say, he's our guy, we want emancipation, nothing more, that's it. And they openly defend a lot of Lincoln appointees who are pretty racist and hate black rights. So that's a problem in of itself. But the anti-Lincoln guys, so the broad interventionists, moral purists, anti-Lincoln, like Phillips, like Abby Kelly Foster, and sometimes like Douglas, start to decide they're going to launch into president-making. Phillips actually gives a speech saying that, and they're going to find an alternative candidate to Lincoln. They start looking at various people like Benjamin Butler, but they eventually hit on John C. Fremont, who was a union general. He had issued an emancipation decree in Missouri in 1861 that Lincoln had revoked. And they eventually see him as a vehicle to become the Republican nominee instead of Lincoln. He, he is a celebrity candidate. A they celebrity end up with Sam and Chase, Benjamin Butler, and John C. Fremont, Explorer of the West, the great, the Pathfinder, yep. the Republican elect, Republican candidate in 1856. Yes. This is a tri This is a disastrous trio in many ways. Mm -hmm. It's an awful group to pin your hopes on, but yeah, they, all, you got to yeah. go with what you got. Just all extremely ambitious people, <laughs> without arguably without much scruples. And yeah, so they latch onto him as the potential Republican nominee. It becomes clear Lincoln is going to be the Republican nominee. So they Fremont turns his candidacy into what he what's called the Cleveland movement because they have a they have a convention at Cleveland to be a third party. So he first tries to recruit all the radicals by saying all these very strong anti-slavery views, but then he realizes he's not gaining any traction. So he actually veers to the other side and appeals to Copperhead Democrats. Copperhead Democrats are the Peace Democrats, as opposed to Democrats who support the Union War. These are essentially openly pro-slavery, pro-Confederate Northern Democrats, and they, all the they're but they're anti-Lincoln. So this is, the, yes. but this they're is where we've gotten to. Yeah, they're anti-Lincoln. So 
the people who had the abolitionists who had joined the Cleveland movement had become big partisans like Wendell Phillips. Frederick Douglass very briefly joined it, but when he saw the direction it was going, he said, I want nothing to do with this. So he's gone, but Abby Kelly Foster, Parker Pillsbury, Wendell Phillips, these guys are still there. And they essentially just go along with it. And they say, yeah, we should just openly ally with the Copperhead Democrats because the ends justify the means. If it'll defeat Lincoln, that's perfectly fine. And it's just really damages his reputation. So William Lee Garrison had a son named Wendell Phillips Garrison because William Lee Garrison and Wendell Phillips were best friends. So he named his son after him. Wendell Phillips actually paid his namesake's way through Harvard. So he was his godfather in a sense. But Wendell Phillips Garrison writes a letter to Wendell Phillips in 1864 after Phillips has appealed to the copyrights, essentially saying, I'm embarrassed to be named after you and I want nothing more to do with you. So it's it just shows how far his reputation has fallen. That, that, yeah, people are, are very upset by what he's doing. Obviously, it, it doesn't work. Lincoln wins the election, but it does damage the but, reputation. But, let's get back to that. Summer of 1864, I'm not necessarily a guy for turning points. <laughs> but if you have to think of a turning point in American history, it's got to be July, August of 1864. A lot depends on what happens then. Yeah. elections mm-hmm. voting starts earlier for the president much earlier than it because of various rules we don't have to get into and mm-hmm. certainly it, that summer lincoln is pretty convinced that he's going to lose the 1864 mm-hmm. election and he is trying to figure out how to achieve his objectives in the civil war even though there's a democrat president coming in in march of yep. 1865 so this also leads, I think, touch on this. Again, this is not the Lincoln show. But we're talking about the abolitionists. This is where Douglas changes his is. mind, is moving around. Yeah, yeah so Douglas uh, has a very interesting trajectory. Uh, he and a lot of black abolitionists get involved in military recruiting of African-American yes. troops, which we don't really have time to get into, but very fascinating, and I do yes. talk about it in the book. But he essentially becomes frustrated that they have to, if they're official recruiters, they have to silence their qualms about a lot of the imperfections of this process. And Lincoln's not moving fast enough. So that's why Douglas starts flirting with this Cleveland movement in May 1864. But yeah, by the summer, he's realized Lincoln's our best option. He actually meets with Lincoln at the White House and Lincoln tells him, I'm actually drafting a plan. If I lose the election, I want to emancipate as many slaves as possible and bring them into freedom by the time that the Democrat takes office in March, and will you help me with this? And this really impresses Douglas, and he says, yes, I'll help you, and I'll support your candidacy in 1864. But more than that, he and a lot of black abolitionists realize maybe what Wendell Phillips is doing by trying to achieve change through partisanship isn't the way to go. We should just get involved in essentially early political organizing. So he and a lot of other black abolitionists create what's called the National Equal Rights League, so it's an African-American-only abolitionist we should, we should know about It's amazing. I, I can't believe I, I must have read about it once before, but it should be better known. It's, it is it is like the NAACP is, is known. Of course, that still exists. But the mm-hmm. National Equal Rights League is really important. And, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it is as, essentially, yeah. yeah it's, it's really important to what happens afterwards, too. It is. And it's an actual blueprint for the NAACP and W.E.B. Du Bois and others who found it. They knew it. that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they so they essentially fight as one united African-American voice for, for freedom and for racial equality for African-Americans. But at the same time, Douglas, through that, and because Lincoln listens to Douglas, I think, 
they are also pushing the sort of the broad interventionist model has taken yes. root in Abraham Lincoln's brain. Now, we could separate show mm-hmm. about how long it had been there. I think mm-hmm. the, you quote Stephen Oates about Lincoln's moral evolution. That is, I think, literally a logical fallacy. That is what begging the question actually means. If we don't, because we never answer why was there a moral evolution. Right. But there certainly, Lincoln is moving towards something that by March of 1865 yes. would have been in March of 1863, let alone March of 1860 or 1861, March of 1863, what Lincoln's moving towards in 1865 is unbelievably radical. It is. So, yeah, the last speech he gives before his assassination in April is actually he endorses uh, voting rights for African-American veterans of the Union military. Uh, So he's actually is moving in that direction. Uh, We obviously don't know what he would have done in Reconstruction, but there is evidence that he would have moved toward this broad interventionist, this this radical view. Uh, The garrison... And and that that comes about, I would, because of, of I would say in part, maybe in large part, because of Lincoln's choice to split the, to find a place in the very wide space between where where Garrison and Phillips have put themselves. Yes, and there is certainly a wide space. Garrison, by this point, the 13th Amendment has been passed by Congress to end slavery. The Union War is nearly over, and he essentially declares victory and says, our job is done. He's been the president for 30 years of the Maine Abolitionist Society. It's called the American Anti-Slavery Society. And he says, our mission's over. Our job of organized reform's over. We can disband the society. You should describe for the listeners how how the Civil War ends for William Lloyd Garrison, because it is very moving. So the war ends for Garrison in 1865. He's actually there. And April 14th, he's, he's invited by the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, to go to a ceremony. So the war started at Fort Sumter in April 1861. And now, pretty much four years later to the day, in April 1865, the Union has recaptured Charleston. It's retaken Fort Sumter. And there's going to be a ceremony to re-raise the same U.S. flag over Fort Sumter. And he's invited by Stanton to be an honored guest at the ceremony, which it's, it truly is, it's hard to overstate how crazy this would have seemed to people. Charleston was the cradle of secession. William Lloyd Garrison would have been hanged immediately had he stepped foot there at any point before the Civil War. And now he's an honored guest at this ceremony, reestablishing federal control of Charleston Harbor. The symbolism of this of this leading abolitionist in Charlton, it's, again, hard to overstate. It's massive. And he's there on April 14th and April 15th when he receives word of Lincoln's assassination. Then he, actually, decides to, he, then he decides to end mm-hmm. the interest group lobby. Yep. The, he's going to end it, which is admirable on one level. But it also indicates that he had no vision for it other than in the 13th Amendment. Yeah. So he says, again, he's the president of the American Anti-Slavery Society, which is the largest society. And he says it should end. It should disband. And our movement, the abolitionist movement, is over. Our mission is done. We have nothing to do with rights for African-Americans. They are irrelevant to our mission. It'll be nice if they happen, but it's not our job to get them done. Whereas people like Wendell Phillips, Frederick Douglass say, no, the society must continue. Douglass, by the way, was not a member of the society. Remember, he was a non-Garrisonian, but he shows up at this annual meeting of the society in 1865 to say, hey, 
you guys, I was your mortal enemy for 10 years, but I want you to continue now. This is a necessary society. We must keep going. Garrison puts it to a vote. He loses the vote to, to end the society, and he and his followers just resign in protest and essentially abandon organized reform. And this is a problem because the people are left. So William Phillips becomes the uh, president of this rump society. Frederick Douglass helps out, others help out, but it is severely depleted of the numbers, the influence, the resources, the pull that the abolitionist movement had with Garrison and others in it. And that's a problem. Uh, a lot of the main editors of the abolitionist newspapers, the guys who had these political contacts are now just retired and want nothing to do with the fight for black rights, want nothing to do with the fight for reconstruction. It severely hurts the ability of abolitionists to, to achieve anything further. And yet Andrew Johnson gives new life to the cause yep. <laughs> by being a complete jerk and racist and anti completely against black rights. Yeah, but so the jerk, Johnson, the jerk really being a yes. jerk really helps. There's no doubt about that. So they do have this brief kind of like glimmer of actually achieving something despite their severely depleted numbers and influence because during the war the Confederacy had made emancipation expedient. Now Andrew Johnson makes certain black rights expedient because he's just willing to readmit former Confederate congressman back into Congress to readmit the Confederate states and give the white Southern Democrats just power again. And this radicalizes a lot of Northerners to say, wait a minute, we just fought a war. We shouldn't just let them have all these political power again. We have to empower a base to oppose them. That would be African-Americans. So giving suffrage to African-Americans. And abolitionists do play a, a pretty important role in getting the 15th Amendment to, to grant suffrage to African-American men passed there are actually two competing versions of the amendment between the House and the Senate. One of them is much more radical because it ends all voting restrictions, which the North had a lot of voting restrictions to restrict the votes of immigrants to people who didn't hold land. So this might this would have been pretty anathema to them. And Wendell Phillips, of all people, actually goes and says to the Senate, no, adopt the less radical version, the one that just gives uh, voting rights to African-American men, uh, leave the restriction stuff alone. It's the only way we could get this passed. We have to be practical. And the, a, lot, a, like, a Republican senator actually says afterwards, like that tipped the scales in our favor. That helped to get, get the amendment passed. So they accomplished this. The problem is it was only expedient for so long. By the 1870s, uh, there's massive immigration. There's labor strife. People are tired of re relitigating the Civil War. People don't want to talk about it anymore and Reconstruction is failing through this Northern apathy, but also white supremacy. The Ku Klux Klan, white supremacist organizations are massacring African-Americans, massacring supporters of Reconstruction, and the people are, uh, in the North are tired. They don't want to deal with this anymore. And the problem is the abolitionists were, had enough still pull to help, to, to help turn the tide when, when these ideas were popular, but they certainly don't have enough now that it's not popular. They, they, they really they can't do much. Don't have the as Americans in 2024 should know. It takes a lot of soldiers to run a counterinsurgency, mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of soldiers that no one wants to pay for or volunteer yes. to be to run a counterinsurgency in the American South. Yeah, it's it's a common it's a common misconception that you see a lot in lost cause about the occupation of the South by federal troops. There were never more than ten thousand. Union troops in the entire South, which again is a very big area, ever. So there was no actual 
occupation that was actually sustainable with that level of with that you write its intervention to help military emancipation ultimately precluded its ability to help achieve post-emancipation equality is that some sort of paradox yeah so that's essentially what I get as one of the main points of my book is that these interventionists, these abolitionists could not have achieved any change without getting involved in politics, without intervening, because people wouldn't have listened to them. They need to get involved. They need to get their hands dirty to, to wade into the muck of political compromise to be heard. But by doing that, they essentially, some of them, like Garrison, proved these purists right. They did lose sight of some of their more radical goals. They did moderate their ideals and beliefs. And abandoned them by the end of the war. So by getting involved, they helped achieve what I say is so much for African Americans. They achieved emancipation. But this also led to some of them watering down their goals, abandoning the movement and really hurting its ability to achieve anything more. I would say watering down the goals. In many ways, they were eroded by events. If you think of events as a landslide and they, the contingencies, the, that uh, new contingencies that occurred every month, every three months, certainly did erode, it left people, mixed my metaphors, left them on different ground. Um, it did. And that, and that we can see now reading the book, I had the sense of just being overwhelmed, just being in that landslide. It's just overwhelming. And also, I wrote the, the, some of the wider lessons I've, I've mentioned before. There's the thing when you had that one goal your entire professional life and you achieve it. You are in the position of the dog who caught the car and then wondering, what am I going to do with it now? I mean, maybe that's all you ever wanted to do in life was get your teeth into the bumper of a 1978 Impala. And so hooray. But then there's other things to do after that. But there's also the there's a question of a really profound one certainly relates today of what happens when activists in a democracy where compromise, I'm thinking of the show we just, uh, program we just did in September uh, with Brooke Manville and Josh Ober about democracies through history. Compromise is built into Athenian and Roman and British and American democracies. What happens when an activist with one moral goal, which I'm saying obviously (laughs) completely is right and justified, but then regards any compromise, which is essential to the political system which they're operating, any compromise is is wrong and against that moral right, how can that exist? And I don't, there is no good answer to that. Yeah. And it just starts, there are, this story that I tell of this tragedy of getting involved and achieving change, but helping dilute your ability to achieve anything more is not unique to abolitionists. There are obvious parallels with, for example, the civil rights movement, the 1950s and 1960s. But I'd say that it is, the lesson here is, is clear that you can't achieve change without compromise. It's just not possible. Are you there, Al? Did I yes, sir. I'm, I'm still here. Okay. So the lesson, I think, is that, yes, these people who want to stand outside the system, who want to be pure, who want, who say we don't need to compromise, change without compromise is pretty clearly not possible. Uh, the abolitionists tried it for 30 years, and they failed. They realized you have to compromise. But it is a double-edged sword political compromise. Uh, because, yeah, what happens when events outpace your expectations of reform? What happens after you achieve the immediate reform you want to achieve by working within the political system? 
there is a price of engaging in this compromise. Uh, and it's arguably an unavoidable price. And that's why there are no easy answers. You can't change outside the political system, but the consequences of doing so are pretty steep as well. And there, and to go back to Lincoln, he would have said there are multiple goods here. There's not just the one good. As interest group activists, it's awful what thing to call them. The abolitionists had just one thing. But Lincoln would say enslaving humans is wrong. So is also upsetting constitutional order. <laughs> Yes. And, and constitutional order is a good thing, too, because mm -hmm. the, the abandonment of it victimizes lots of other people as well, and it, into yes. the ones who are already being victimized. And, of course, to compromise between the two is, is hard and awful, but it's also like necessary in order to achieve multiple goods. And that's just the way human life is. Probably the greatest political tactician the United States has seen, so he, yeah, he certainly knew what he was talking about. And I think a well, lot of abolitionists came to appreciate that, too. Well, my guest today has been Frank J. Cirillo. His book is The Abolitionist, the Abolitionist Civil War, Immediatists, and the Struggle to Transform the Union. Frank, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks so much, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, of course, you can give us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. But the best way of helping us out is to share the podcast with a friend or with many friends. John Rodette is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters.